This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. And the show is Radio Marinara. My name is Dr. Beach. And I'm Dr. Surf. And we have Tim on the panel. Not only do we have to thank Tim Thorpe for panelling for us this morning, but also for a wonderful three hours. Thank you, Tim, for delivering vital, bit to, vital bits to us yet again. How are you going, <laughs> Dr. Surf? I'm very well. How are you? I'm pretty well. It's a lovely day. Yeah, it is a pretty nice day. No balloons in the, wa- in the water. How is that? that? That was... Um, that was amazing footage. Yeah. For those of you who didn't see it, a balloon was blown off course yesterday and was unloaded out in the middle of the bay by some vol- very uh, brave volunteers. Off Black Rock, actually. In a beautiful boat. Did you see their boat? Um, I want one. I didn't, actually. I just heard about it. And then the, the once unloaded, the balloon came down at Mount Martha, which um, I would have loved to have seen, but I was working in a shop. Right. So... No balloons today. Yeah, everyone was safe. Windy. That was good. Yeah. How's the weather looking? Uh, the weather today. Well, yeah, all right. Well, let's get into that. The weather today, 20 degrees. It's going to be mostly sunny. Morning cloud increasing during the afternoon with slight 30% chance of a shower at night. Winds north 25 to 45 k. So how's that looking for the surf? There's good waves on the beaches today. So I would head to the Mornington Peninsula or Phillip Island because the swells drop right off. Okay. It's going to be one and a half probably a little bit below two metres and a strong wind's coming in, so probably the earlier you get in, the better. High tides, I think, about 12.30. Does that look right? Um, tides are at Point Lonsdale, low tide Sunday at 5.55am. Yep. High tide at 12.52. There you go, one o'clock. You're all over it. Yep. And for the rest of the week, tomorrow is going to be 17 degrees, showers easing. Tuesday, 17 degrees, mostly sunny. Wednesday, 17 degrees, rain rain increasing. Fantastic. I Yay. love rain. Yes. Beautiful. We've got a 90% chance of rain on Wednesday. I love the way we get this percentage now. Hmm. And so, too, on Thursday, we have a 90% chance, chance of rain. And Friday and Saturday. Good. Cool. We need lots of rain. What's happening on the show? Today, mm-hmm. um, I, will, I am doing... Remember last time I came on, we had a quick chat to a surf cartoonist? 
yep. Mark Sutherland. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to continue that theme by doing a rundown of probably the most famous surf cartoonist called Rick Griffin from California, who was a surf cartoonist in the early 60s but went on to become one of the Psychedelic Five cartoonists in San Francisco that did a lot of the posters around the Summer of Love and did posters for... Fillmore West, the Avalon Ballroom, all those wonderful venues in San Francisco and LA. So we'll be doing a bit of a rundown on him and it gives me a great tentative excuse, I suppose, to play The Grateful Dead. I love The Dead. So I'll be talking a little bit about The Dead because I think there's a bit of a dearth of knowledge about The Grateful Dead out there. A dearth. dearth. dearth And I think people should know about The Grateful Dead because they're like the antithesis to Eurovision. I keep getting this image of the, um, you know, the, the kind of symbol, the, the skull. That was a Rick Griffin. Right. Yep. Well, we can that. talk about that. Yeah. So that's the first segment. Um, and then we are going to have Steve Howden, our own Captain Windshift, on the line very, very quickly. He, well, I've, got, I've got a question for him, and he's going to hopefully be able to answer that for me. Uh, Perrin Cook from Monash University is coming in to talk about the history of the blooms of blue-green algae in the Gippsland Lakes. That's going to be... At around 9.30. And then we have Jeff Maynard coming in for the last segment to entertain us with something wonderful, I'm sure, something scary. It's probably going to be crocodiles, sharks and... Oh, Jesus, how, I mean, how's that crocodile thing during the week, those guys? In the little tinny. In the little tinny. They got, they, got, they got the tinny bumped, bumped by a croc. One fell in and I think... He drowned, unfortunately. Well, I think he was chomped. No, no, I don't think he don't was, actually. No? no, no, I think he drowned under the capsized tin, oh, unfortunately. Okay. And yeah. his mate was there with a spanner and all sorts of things trying to... For three the, hours. For three hours until some other um, crabbers found him. Mm. Yeah. some news. But yeah, because we neglected to do that before because you and I are so unprofessional, Dr. Surf. Which, when Bron's not here to look after us, it just goes haywire. Unprofessional is my middle name. Yeah. It's good. And it, we, we now have Kent back panelling and, and, and we've blamed it all on Tim for playing a Bob Dylan interview. So um, so Kent is fell asleep <laughs> listening to a Bob Dylan interview because you've got any French cigarettes. Or... Right. <laughs> I might try that next time I've got insomnia. I reckon we should get a compilation. We should try and get Bob Dylan to do AFL oh, yeah. theme songs in the Bob Dylan style. <laughs> like, and each, we each, are the Navy Blues. Each song would have to have 54 verses. And so when they played it at the end of, the, end of the, uh, each match, they, the song would go on for like 25 minutes. <laughs> that would that, get the crowd out of it. That would empty out the ground, wouldn't it? Yellow and black with uh, yellow and black. No. <laughs> Uh, a little bit of news from the marine world. Um, there's a paper which has appeared... Well, it's a commentary, really, in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences entitled Tracking Marine Alien Species by Ship Movements. Um, we've talked about this a little bit on the show before, and I don't want to spend too much time on it, but a lot of the pernicious um, kind of invading species like phytoplankton and seaweeds and mussels, a lot of stuff which is in the plankton gets spread around um, in the ballast water of ships. So ships will load up with ballast when they're when they are empty and then dump it at some other port. So it's a perfect place for... perfect way for things to be spread around the ocean. Um, 
this person in... Um, so this is Anthony Ricciardi has decided that he can track this by... He can model it by tracking ship movements and also putting into that equation the temperature and the latitudes and the environments that these particular species can possibly live in. And he's been actually very successful at doing that, so he's got a 70% hit rate hmm. on so predicting what organisms will be will survive moving around the globe. So there's ships. an assumption that every ship that <coughs> comes into a new dock will expel ballast water that yeah, probably, and along... probably contains invasive species. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very famous way of things getting around, and we know this a lot. There's a guy called Gustav Hallegraaf down in Tasmania um, who was all over this working on phytoplankton. So, for example, there's a couple of species of, of dinoflagellates, which are phytoplankton, which produce really nasty neurotoxins, which we know have only been around as far as we... Well, we're pretty sure they've only been around for the last few decades in this country, and, um, and that's how they got here as well as probably the Northern Pacific Sea Star mm. yeah. and all sorts of things. Anyway, there's people modelling this and it seems like that they um, they might have come up with some really good... 70% uh, a good way fairly good. Yeah, it's a good hit rate. Mm. Yeah, you've got a little bit of news too, haven't you? I do. I'm, I'm going to have a, uh, three items of surf news. The first one is uh, those of you who listen regularly will know that we've had a couple of segments on wave pools. The, uh, I think... The best way to describe this, I'm going to talk about Kelly Slater's wave pool. Kelly Slater is the 11 times world champion of surfing and it's a general consensus he's ridden more good waves than anyone on the planet and he's come up with a wave pool in Fresno, which is about an hour and a half east of LA, San Francisco, sorry. Uh, He's taken over what used to be a water ski park and he's made a wave pool and uh, his wave is unbelievably good. It is actually professional level it to a point where you'd look at it and you think i don't know if i can ride that but it's it's if anyone wants to have a look at this wave just google kelly slater and wave pool and it'll come up and there's some lovely footage of it the only downside of it is that the wave is tea colored because it's i don't know it it looks quite weird riding a wave that's brown it'd be like being at you know, Wilson's Prom, Tidal River or something. Yeah. Tannin? That's right. It'd be like riding a river mouth where the river, there's been heavy rain and the tannins have all washed out. So you see waves of this colour around Peru sometimes and on the west coast of the US after heavy rain. But um, it's the reason I mention it is because I think it's, it's a game changer. This wave is unbelievably good, whereas prior to that, waves have been okay so so you can get tubed on this oh yeah example? there are there there's footage of people getting tubed for you know 10 15 seconds on this wave it's a head high wave uh it's just in still in the de- developmental stage so kelly's just inviting his friends along to test it out he's got prototype waves and yes and, and he's just having a bit of fun so you can't actually go there and surf it yet but it will come uh, there's no doubt about that. People come from Fresno, California. Yes. Uh, a couple of other small items of news. Those of you who are regular surfers will know, and I was trying um, to work out with my friends at the surf shop yesterday because I help out at a surf shop on Saturdays. How long has the surf been good? Boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Um, at least four weeks. We've had fantastic surfs, especially on the surf coast. It's just been pumping. It's a little bit smaller today, but there's another swell coming in next week, so it's on. Uh, the water's still warm. The, the waves have been fantastic. I will mention those of you... I know, Dr Beach, you would have seen in the mass media a couple of weeks ago, Big Wednesday, there was a big swell that came in at Bells and the 
there were cameras down there and yeah, Bob. it was so crowded I got down to my local spot at dawn and I couldn't get a car park. The reason why I'm mentioning it is the next week... You should, should have carpooled with another surfer. <laughs> I know. But surfers and bloody we car We should have Ubered it. I'm over it. Anyway, I got down there the next Wednesday. The swell was just as good. The conditions were just as good. And there was like a literally 20% of the people. So mass media, can you just leave us alone? Get off, get over this big Wednesday rubbish. Finally, they, they, they want to share it. That's oh. the other thing. I, you know, so but it's, it's, you're it's, also selfish with I your know. breaks. And, and it's, but it's typical because they'll find something, they'll hammer it, and then they'll just move on. And even though, But it's typical of you guys wanting to keep it to yourselves. Well, that's because I grew up being a surfer in the 70s and, and um, we were lower than real estate agents. We were the lowest of the low. And it's, it's a bit hard for me to come to terms with the fact that we're no longer the, the societal scum. And, and I don't wish to offend real estate agents. We were, we were drug addicts and dealers and layabouts, dull bludgers. That's what we were. And I want to go back to being that. It was fun. One last piece of news. Um, um, for those of you who are going to Fiji tomorrow, there's going to be very big waves. Uh, there's a huge swell heading in towards cloud break. They're expecting at least 15-foot waves. Um, one, of our local ski- uh, one of our local surfers, Skeeter Durham, is headed over there with his boards to paddle in. They're expecting the biggest swell since 2012. Those of you who want to see how big that swell was in 2012, go to Magic Seaweed and have a look at it. So that's my news. Magic seaweed, that sounds like a great site. It is. I love seaweeds. Hmm. Um, you, you, you're going to talk to us about Rick Griffin. I am. And let's get my next piece of paper. I'm going to give you a quick rundown on who is probably the most famous surf cartoonist mm-hmm. in uh, history. But the reason why he's so interesting is not just because he was a surf cartoonist, but because he progressed on and became one of what was called the Psychedelic Five, which is a group of cartoonists in uh, the Haight-Ashbury area in 1967. Um, Haight-Ashbury being a, being a, a neighbourhood of San Francisco. Yeah, and this is all about that summer of love, 1967, when hippie, psychedelia, that whole scene started coming through. And um, so what... Rick Griffin was part of that. He's a very talented cartoonist. He started off as a schoolboy cartoonist for the Surfer magazine in 1961. And he actually uh, got his cartoon on the cover of the second edition. So he's right in there in in what we call California's golden age, the naive time in the early 60s when everything was fine and uh, all anybody did was surf. He had a very bad car accident in 1964 which resulted in him losing an eye and for a variety of reasons he he started moving away from the surf uh, cartoons. His most famous surf cartoon I should mention is Murph the Surf or Murphy uh, and he did a series of cartoon strips around that character. And but that, that appeared in Surfer in Magazine? Surfer Magazine. He got into um, the CalArts school in LA but he only lasted a year and dropped out. And then he started getting involved in a band called the Dukes. And he, he attended, remember Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters, Acid Tests? He yep. started, this is in San Francisco in the mid-60s, we're talking 66 probably. He started attending these, I guess what you'd call love-ins, whatever, and got mentioned, uh, got noticed by a lot of people. And he started drawing a whole range of cartoons, including... Big Daddy Roth. Kent knows Big Daddy Roth, the Hot Rod cartoons. Uh, and But he got, men- he got noticed there by Jerry Garcia, who we just mentioned was the lead singer of 
the Grateful Dead. Yeah. And so there's, there was this whole milieu, if I can use that, and please excuse my French, that term, the whole environment the around psychedelic. And it was the time when the young were rebelling. And it's... I was only young at the time, but it's a very, it was the time when the um, the young decided that going to work at nine o'clock in a suit, knocking off at five, was not for them. Mm. The system was just crazy. I happen to agree with that 100%. Um, but it was the time of 1966-1967 when it was a wonderful place to be with San Francisco when you were a cartoonist. He was uh, His posters for the Duke Savages psychedelic shop art show was seen by uh, the organisers of the B-In capital B capital I which was a get together of all the alternative uh, I guess hipsters bands um, and just hippies basically and it's known as the start of the summer of love the 1967 summer of love in the Haight-Ashbury uh, San Francisco area the B-In was at the Golden Gate Park which I know you know well, mm-hmm. Dr Beach. Well, not, not that well, but, you know, we have I've, been I've, there. I've been through it. We've walked through it, yes, yes in, the, in the mid-'80s. And there are still a lot of recently. old hippies there in the mid-'80s. It was quite sad. They hadn't moved on. But anyway, getting back to Rick Griffin... Well, sad from your point of view. I mean, they're probably quite happy with yeah. it. Yeah, they were happy yeah. with their tired eyes. Yeah, but, but you're, you're, it was. That, that period, 1966, 67, 68, you think of the changes that happened then. I mean, I, you know, you and I were both... Callow youth, but it was... Little God, boys. I just remember my older siblings bringing home posters of Hendrix and, you know, and all these other things which were wearing just blowing, tie-dye. blowing my tiny six- yeah. or seven-year-old And mind. the jeans, they'd have tie-dye jeans, flares. Yeah. So it was all about rebelling against the mainstream, about the, the system, as they called it, getting a job, wearing a suit, having babies. So um, let's get back to Rick. Rick Griffin was meant... This is where it gets interesting from a triple R music point of view because his work was seen uh, by Chet Helms and Bill Graham, who are rock, uh, I guess, promoters, who ran the Avalon Ballroom and the Fillmore West, Mm -hmm. big rooms in uh, San Francisco and and L.A. So they uh, hired Rick to do posters, and here's a list of some of the people that Rick did posters for, and it's just an... uh, It's a good example of who you could see for a minimum door charge in California in 67 to, let's say, 1970. So he did posters for The Who, Creedence, Clearwater, Santana, Quicksilver Messenger Service, Big Brother and the Holding Company with Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Deep Purple, Iron Butterfly, The Moody Blues, Albert King and, of course, my favourite, The Grateful Dead. Most, uh, Rick went on to do several covers for The Grateful Dead and I'm struggling here because their most famous album is a palindrome. And my son knows how to pronounce this word but I'm going to try. It's Oxomoxoa from, I think, 1970. A wonderful... If you get a chance to have a look at the cover of that album, it's a great example of Rick Griffin's psychedelic work. Rick went on to become a member, as I mentioned before, of the Big Five psychedelic cartoonists, including Alton Kelly, Stanley Mouse Miller, Victor Moscoso and Wes Wilson. So he, he continued to, to do art and a number of posters, but unfortunately had another bad uh, auto accident where he came off his motorbike 
1991, age 47, and died. Wow. So there's my little rundown on Rick Griffin. For anyone who wants to find out about his art, there's plenty of it on the web. Just type in Rick Griffin surf posters and you'll see. I know you will have all seen them. They're all embedded in your psyche. And Victor Moscoso, you mentioned that too. I've got a... I was trying to remember the name of the person that did a post that I've got at home, and it's him. I'm oh. going to show you that after the show. And, and they went yeah. on, of course, to produce magazines or cartoons like Zap, mm-hmm. and um, and you can still buy them today. And I don't think um, our favourite car, uh, magazine shop's still in in operation down in um, Brunswick Street, is it? You're looking blankly at me. <laughs> Polyester. Polyester. Right. That's where yeah. you would have gone. Okay. Anyway. Yeah, and you are Dr. Surf, by the way, and I'm Dr. Beach, and we have on the phone our very own Captain Windshift. How are you going, Captain? G'day, Dr. Beach, Dr. Surf. How are you? I'm I'm very well. Yeah, 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 we're both well. Yeah. What are you up to? You um, out on the water? No, sadly. Uh, work calls. I'm taking a break from work to talk to you. <laughs> and I have a particular question for you. I was, um, a couple of weeks ago, I was down at St Kilda and I was at a bar looking just near the corner of the Esplanade in Fitzroy Street, looking out over the bay. But, you know, in the foreground was the St Kilda Yacht Squadron. And I asked myself the question, why do... Sometimes we have a yacht club and then sometimes we have a yacht squadron. And, you know, squadron to me, as it is to many people, I'd imagine, invokes aviation. So walk me through this. I'm hoping you know the answer to it. Well, I I had to make a lot of phone calls to a lot of people to try and get some sense of this because to all practical senses today, there isn't a difference between a yacht club and a yacht squadron. But um, so you might have Port Melbourne Yacht Club and St Kilda Yacht Squadron, and they're effectively the same thing. Um, in the old days, though, the uh, notion of a squadron was so that you would have a register of boats that belonged to that squadron. So your boat, you know, Amelia, belonged to the New York Yacht Squadron or something, so it was part of that register of boats. Um, that's the best difference we can come up with. So for practical senses, there's no difference. Right, but OK. There is, yeah, there is one thing we did discover, though, yeah. um, which shows that we're all actually not really naming our clubs correctly. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. So um, a yacht club means uh, a club of people who are boat owners, and they can be either sailing boats or motorboats. So I've discovered. Um, because in, in Bo Morris, there is the Bo Morris Motor Yacht Squadron. There you go. And I was right. wondering so if it was a like a fleet of motorboats. So they call them a yacht, which always jars a bit with us sailing people. I'm sure it does. Anyway, apparently they are on a yacht, and so there you go. Um, but the interesting thing is that if you're technically just a club full of sailors, you really should call it the XYZ Sailing Club. Right. Do you if think you there's to be some really, really pedantic about it? <laughs> is there some snobbish value? I always think of a yacht squadron, and I think of Thurston Howell the Third with his nappy cap. <laughs> Yale twenty seven, wasn't he? 
Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I think Squadron, Royal, all of those sorts of things tend to invoke that thing, whereas, you know, XYZ Beach Sailing Club is um, is different. But, you know, there's, there's no actual formal thing these days. You can call yourself a yacht squadron or a yacht club and off you go. So, so no idea of changing the, the Port Melbourne Yacht Club to the, the Port Melbourne, the Royal Port Melbourne Yacht Squadron, perhaps? <laughs> Absolutely no chance whatsoever. <laughs> However, we did think, hey, wouldn't it be nice to call it the Port Melbourne Sailing Club? to get the um, <laughs> get the definition right. So, so what are you at the moment? I forget. Beg your pardon? What, what's Port Melbourne called again at the, at the moment? We are the Port Melbourne Yacht Club. The so m- technically speaking, we should allow um, motorboats in there. Oh, is, OK, I'm with you. Yeah. First. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get those nasty petrol-consuming people, no, ban them. Uh, I mean, you don't have them anyway at the moment. But um, No, 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 we wouldn't let them in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Thank you very much for obviously doing a lot of deep research into this. It's, it's a very important question which has been preying on my mind and I know has probably been bugging many of our listeners for many years and they'll all be oh, quite, quite relieved to have had this <laughs> solved now. Uh, just before we let you go back to your work, um, anything exciting happening in the small boat world in the next couple of weeks that you want to share with us? Uh, mainly people are training and rebuilding boats right at the very moment. Um, so it's winter for dinghies, that is. Right. So uh, larger boats obviously sail right through winter, and we will sail right through winter when training. But uh, at the moment, um, people will be travelling overseas for regattas or training or rebuilding the boat ready for the next attack. Cool. Steve, um, also known as Captain Windshift, I thank you very much um, for sharing your time with us on this busy Sunday morning for you. And we'll talk to Have you soon. Thanks. Sayonara. That was um, Steve Howden, a.k.a. Captain Windshift, from the, um, the Port Melbourne Murder Yacht Squadron. No, he's no. <laughs> we're also I'm very pleased to say that we're joined in the studio now by Perrin Cook, Dr Perrin Cook from Monash University, who... Um, well, uh, how are you going, Perrin? I'm good. Very well. Thank you, Dr Beach, and uh, thanks for having me on, Dr Beach and Dr Surf. That, that's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. And... The reason I've got you on today is that I want you to share with us a, a paper that you published last year entitled Blooms of Cyanobacteria in a Temperate Australian Lagoon System Post and Prior to European Settlement, which is all about the Gippsland Lakes. Yes, um, that title is a bit boring, isn't it, now that you read it out to me? Well, that, that, that often happens with scientific articles, isn't it? We have well, to I think get all the information in there so people can find it on their, their favourite search engine. I think they're trying to jazz them up a bit and I haven't... Um I haven't got on that bandwagon enough. You're old school. I think so. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, yeah, you're, it's Australian lagoon system, so yep. Gippsland Lakes yep. is a classic example of an Australian lagoon system and cyanobacteria are, of course, well, not of course, but they are blue-green algae yep. bacteria that photosynthesise. Yep. Had quite a few blooms in, since European settlement. And what have you been doing? How have you gone about this? Well, so... Um I feel a bit bad, first of all. I always talk about the the algal blooms in the lakes, but I I should say at the outset that probably 95% of the time there aren't algal blooms or more. So so, so most of the time this isn't the case, but when they do happen, um, things kick off a bit. So since about the mid-'80s, we've had probably every five years um, one of these blooms, Um, and that's obviously bad news. They're toxic, so... So these are cyanobacteria, and it's, it's a genus called nodularia. Nodularia, yep. Yeah. So they, they produce a, a liver toxin, so that's bad news if you, if you eat the stuff or drink the water. Um, yeah. So what we were wondering is, well, how long have these blooms been happening? So 
if we if you look back through the records, there are there are some early accounts of of fishermen. So there's a fisherman called Jock Carstairs, and he had a diary and. Um, there's some excerpts of that being published, and and he noted that in dry years um, the lakes would become like a carpet of green that looked like a field on a on a very fine day, <laughs> and this led to both fish kills and also clogged up their nets. And one of one of the fishermen they said fell in the water and got a mouthful of this stuff and died. Mm. How so, long ago was that? So that was in the 1880s. So that was just prior to the current article, the artificial open, uh, opening of the entrance. So, so this is going back quite a way, over 100 years. So I just want to stop you there. So these were... So, so we put through an artificial opening. So it was prior to 1880, it was an enclosed freshwater system. Yeah, so, so the, the entrance broke through... Period, well, periodically broke through, and, and the thing that... or, or the, the motivation for making the artificial entrance was the need to have steamer traffic going into the lakes because that's how most of the goods were transported in that time, so there was no roads. So in 1889, they, they built the current entrance and it basically stands in the same spot today. OK, right. So you've been, have you been investigating the history of this? Yeah, so we've obviously, as I said, we've got the anecdotal accounts and so we've been, we wanted to look into this in a little bit more detail. So this was a collaboration with... Um, uh, Professor Peter Gell from Federation Uni. So a few of us, quite a few of us involved. Also, Ansto. I need to acknowledge all those people. Australian mm-hmm. Nuclear Science Technology Organisation. So the way we looked at this was, we if we can find a place where it's nice and calm, water's relatively deep, so so the mud isn't um, uh, washed away, we can get this accumulation um, of of sediment over over many decades to to centuries to thousands of years, depending on how fast it's building up. And the way we can then look back in time is basically take a big core of this mud, so we took a two-metre-long section of it, and we can chop it up, and we can date each of those slices using um, uh, radioisotope dating techniques. Yeah. And then we can start analysing those different sections of mud for different things. So, so I'm, getting, I'm trying to get an image here. So you're, you're out there in a boat... And you've got like a big tubey thing which you drop over the side, and it goes down into the sediment, and you bring that back up. And am, am I right so far? Yeah, perfect, exactly. That's a great image. Yep. So it's, it's it's a lot of fun. It's basically like it's collecting this huge tube of mud, and and you keep that intact in the boat, and then you get back to the lab and extract it from this tube, the the, the mud core. Or yeah, do you, yeah. So or do you take several when you're out on the boat and put them into? bags or something exactly so, so we, we take several when we're out on the boat and we, we we basically then extrude them into an into imagine very high tech we go to bunnings we get some pvc pipe <laughs> we cut it in half and then we extrude very carefully the core into that into that pvc pipe to, to keep it intact is and the then core, it, sorry is, the, is it quite dense i get this this image of it runny runny mud and it'd be quite difficult to keep it all together is that true it's 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 a i've got to say that the 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 mud in the lakes is very high quality mud we can we can it's a perfect consistency it's soft enough to core and then when we push it out it's it's very nice and cohesive really sticks together so we can we can then extrude it and it it maintains its form okay cool so 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 yeah so once you've got that then you can do radiocarbon dating did you say on the on the bits of the core to to First of all, get the date. Yeah, so so there's a few few techniques we can use. Um, radiocarbon is one of them. The, the one we use is lead two ten, so that gives us that's good for a, a time frame of maybe fifty to a hundred years because that isotope decays over that sort of time frame. Radiocarbon's 
up to five thousand years, much much longer time frame. So so for those short. So, time so lead is high resolution for over the last couple of centuries, whereas carbon is if you're looking over the last few millennia or something. Yeah, yeah, decades to hundreds of years, depending on on the system. Yeah. Right. Yep. Okay. Yeah, and so then you can yeah you know, once you know the age of each slice, you can you can do a few things. You can analyse for for pigments, so colours. So blue green algae, obviously, the name suggests that they've got some quite um, unique colours, yep. and, and effectively those pigments we can analyse for, and we can see in the different slices the eras that there's, there's been blue green algal presence. Okay. So how do you analyse for pigments? Do you use a microscope or is it an HPLC? Or oh, perfect HPLC, yeah, oh. high, high, high performance um, liquid chromatography. So that's why well, you guys are getting so technical. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So basically, the the colours are separated out, um, and then basically we um, you just measure how much light they absorb in the same way that. When we see something, it's, it's it's absorbing light, and we just use an instrument to do that for us. Okay, so you don't have to stick the samples under a microscope and then try and identify presence or absence of these blue-green algae. No, so unfortunately, the blue-green algae they they degrade basically. So there's no there's no real record of them being left. There are a type of um, algae called diatoms, which which do leave a very distinct. Um, well, they have a, sh- a shell that's made out of silicon, and they, they've got some. Very like, distinct... like a glass case around them. Exactly, exactly. And um, so this is one of my colleagues, Peter Gell, was involved. He's a he's an e- expert in diatom taxonomy. So you can look at the types of diatoms that were there. So in addition to looking at where the blue green algae that were there, you can look at these other types of algae, which tell you how saline the system was. Okay. So that then helps you validate your record because we know that there were certain times when the salinity changed in the lakes or we, th- we think that happened. And so you can then say, well, in that layer we found these algae which are more marine and that kind of validates the date at which... This is great. I'm going to this, this fantastic image of how you can like go through the core and you can build up this real profile of, you know, of, of what the conditions were in the lake, so how, how salty it was when yep. the entrance was opened or yep. not. Yep. So the, the, the blooms, do they occur... The blooms of blue-green algae, the, the the toxic ones with the you know the, the liver toxins, do they happen in? Are they coincident with the opening of the entrance or not, or, or, or with a greater influx from from the sea or from so, something else? So I suppose I'll, I'll sort of cut to the chase. So um, the, 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 what we observed was that the most severe blooms were actually prior to um, the entrance opening, and I think even prior to European settlement. So these things that we these 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 blooms that we associate with 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 eutrophication, so excessive nutrient inputs, were occurring prior to European settlement. And the reason I think that, that was was because the lakes were much fresher then and, and the algae, or the blue-green algae, um, typically bloom at low salin- under low salinity conditions. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that the lakes were probably very stratified and, and that means that the, the, the bottom layer of the lakes was probably anoxic. They were very stratified because it was less flushing because the entrance was less open. Yep. There was a bit of seawater getting in, so there was enough enough salt going in there to, to lead to this stratification. So then under those conditions with low flushing, we had this anoxia, so low oxygen in the, in the water column. And it's under those conditions that phosphorus, which is the key nutrient that, that drives these um, blue-greens, the yeah. actually is released from the sediment. So, so prior to... Prior to settlement, the conditions were really good. And then the interesting thing that we saw was for about 70 years, up until about the Second World War, the blooms disappeared. So the lakes were very, very clean. And then after the Second World War, they came back again. And so this is one of the mysteries is, well, why, 
why did they come back? So the blooms of blue-green algae came back yeah. after the Second World War. Yeah. The, yeah. This period of 70 years where it was all yeah. quite nice. And so what's changed in that, that time? And I suppose there's a few things. We know that blue-green's like really warm conditions. So, I mean, obviously there has been a bit of bit of warming since, you know, in that, in that period of time. But I think my hypothesis is, and this may be a bit controversial, is that it's actually, I think, and this comes back to one of my research interests, is, is nitrogen inputs into the lakes. Because we know that in that period post-Second World War, it's, it's really intensification of agriculture, um, more nitrogen's being added to the catchments. That nitrogen goes into the lakes. And what it does is in the winter period, when we have blooms of other types of algae, it stimulates the growth of those algae. So, for example, diatoms that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. When those guys die, they sink to the bottom. And then they um, consume oxygen. So we've got then a return to anoxic conditions. Right. So, so we have this sort of system where there was anoxia prior to European settlement, which was driven by sort of the closed system. Then, then we opened the system up. It was well flushed. The system continues to be relatively well flushed to this day, but because we've put more nutrients in there, there's now more organic matter going into the bottom layer, which has now led to the return of the anoxia and the conditions that, that are conducive to the blooms during summer. That's so cool. What a beautiful kind of image you're getting from those cores. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you see it. <laughs> How often are we seeing blooms now? Um, it, 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 it sort of, it, it, it really follows climatic cycles. So on average, I would say once every five years. Okay. Yeah. There was a period there in the millennium drought, we didn't see any blooms. So like I said, we see them in the high flow years now. So the millennium drought was, you know, relatively good period in terms of um, cyanobacterial blooms because the water was too salty, no stratification. And no runoff from land. No, no and less runoff from land, yeah. yeah. And are there regular samples being taken of the lakes to monitor the these harmful bacteria? Yes, so um, the, they're taken every one to two weeks depending okay. on as we go into the summer season, they're taken every week. A guy called Jonathan, Jonathan Smith who's based in Meetung, he, he samples every week or every two weeks for uh, environment, land, water and planning. Mm-hmm. So they do monitor it very closely from a range of sites. So, they, so they've got their finger on the pulse. <laughs> I'd like that job. <laughs> well, it is pretty good. In fact, I just spent last week doing a, um, a phyto... As you know, I love algae. I love phytoplankton in particular, doing a, a class, of a phytoplankton class, and um, with a colleague of mine who does that kind of monitoring as well, looking for things like diatoms and dinoflagellates and the presence of them because if they increase... If you've got the nasty ones, which make these toxins, if you've got an increased number of those in the water then you have to close the mussel farms or oyster farms or or whatever um so back but, but back to your work it's does this give us any lessons for the future or um is it, it's a it's clearly an, an interesting historical observation but but what's is it going to change to any kind of planning or, or what, what's what's the take what, on for the future? What's the message, I suppose? So, so in, t- to date, the focus um, has really been on phosphorus inputs to the lakes. Um, I think also um, nitrogen inputs are important as well. Um, in terms of how you manage for that, you, you, pr- you pr- generally probably manage in a fairly similar manner for, for phosphorus and nitrogen inputs, although nitrogen is more soluble. So, so um, what that means is that um, when you're really managing for phosphorus, what you're primary focus is prevent is is stopping erosion so turbidity particulate material going in when you're when you're focusing for nitrogen you probably also need to look at the type of land use as well right and one of the things i see sort of happening in the future um is that 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 area is 
relatively high water security. Um, it's also in terms of the forecast for climate change is probably not going to be as affected as the the more western areas. The, the rainfall is probably forecast to stay steady or to increase. So I see maybe agriculture moving more into those catchments. There is already agriculture there, but in terms of the the amount that the, the available water has been used is, is much, much less than elsewhere. So, for example, um, high-intensity agriculture like horticulture um, has a huge amount of nitrogen emissions. So, so I suppose the thing there is to, 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 to be very cautious about how much, you know, what type of agricultural development happens. And if that does happen, then there needs to be um, measures in place to, to prevent the nitrogen runoff as much as possible. This would be my take-home message. Perrin Cook, thank you very much for joining us. Perrin from Monash University uh, talking about the Gippsland Lakes. Jeff Maynard. How are you going, Jeff? Good morning, Guy. I'm going well. You're going I, well? That's good to hear. I, uh, I got inspired driving in. Um, I was listening to all the... Uh, I grew up in the... I was in school in the 1960s and um, mum would get white T-shirts from Coles and you'd draw surfers on them and all that sort of stuff and hanging five and ten and all the good stuff. So I got quite inspired. Uh, Grateful Dead fan. And I'm going to noodle today oh, cool. because normally I come in with my notebook and I've got a whole lot of stuff about the movie I'm going to talk about. And as you can see, or you guys can see, uh, no notebook. So I'm just going to go improv. Yeah. Improv, the whole thing. So we're doing it. And if it works out really well, we can say it was because Bron wasn't here. <laughs> and it works out as an absolute sort of the whole thing dies and at three minutes to, to ten we're sort of uh, we're looking at the thing thinking oh god get this over with uh, we'll say it was because Bron wasn't here so no, we way, can blame everything on Bron yeah. we blame it all on Bron that's that's all so I'm going to noodle uh, because the movie I was going to talk about was so bad I didn't even bother to look <laughs> it up on IMDB or, or sort of watch I watched the football last night and just completely ignored it it's a movie called uh, what's it called you've the, even forgotten the name of it it's yeah, that yeah, bad. yeah. It, was that, it, was that it, was it had that a couple bad. of names actually. It was called Evil in the Deep, and uh, it was also called Treasure of Jamaica Reef or something. It's a nineteen seventies movie. They're pretty good. They're pretty exciting names. Oh, they are great names. That, that have... I can see why you thought that they might be good fodder for for Marinara. Well, listen to the first part of the uh, the trailer. The trailer's great. I think it's James Earl Jones doing the voiceover mm. for the trailer. <laughs> It lives at 50 fathoms, lurking silent and deadly as it waits. The perfect machine, fearing nothing, feeling nothing. The ultimate survivor in a world so mysterious, so terrifying, that man cannot imagine it. Where unknown danger lurks in every murky shadow, and death is circling closer by the second. 
So it's a pretty good trailer. Well, that's the start of the trailer. In fact, we've got two bits from the trailer. Uh, the tra- that would get better. better. That was I, I, Darth I, I, Vader, wasn't it? It did yeah, sound yeah, like Darth well, Vader. Yeah, well, James L. Jones. I think he, he was the voice of Darth Vader, yeah. wasn't it? So we had a Darth of something else. Or something <laughs> we <like>. did. <laughs> now we've got a Darth of Vader's. And, um, yeah, yeah, James. Well, I'd, I'd, yeah, I'm with you. I'd be watching that, giving um, what James has um, promised for it. Yeah, it, it was it was good. Um, and in fact, it was so good. I've actually got uh, two tracks from the trailer and only one from the actual movie. Uh, so we'll play the second one, second part of the trailer while we're on a roll. Each search for adventure, dive to the depths and caverns of the dead. The hunters and the hunted stalk each other in this perilous game, where paralyzing fear leaves man helpless as he beholds evil in the deep. Beware. <laughs> It's coming to a theatre or drive-in near you soon. Evil in the deep. See it before you go near the water. That's goddamn terrifying. Ooh. That's good, isn't it? Do yeah. we actually find out what the evil is? No. Oh. Uh, I, even when you watch the movie, you don't, because it's basically uh, a bunch of uh, scuba divers. They get salvage rights to some sort of wreck. Uh, they go there, and they're led by Stephen Boyd. And he was sort of on his downward slide. Stephen Boyd was an Irish actor, best known for being the baddie in Ben Hur. You know, the, oh. guy, the guy in the chariot with the spiky. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Steve, yeah. Stephen Boyd, big, muscly uh, Irish guy, great voice. And um, uh, I think he might have done a few musicals, but he, he, he was big. And then he sort of went on to, into the decline in the 1970s and started looking around for TV gigs and things like that. And died <laughs> at about 45 years of age of a heart attack playing golf. I, I did look up that much on, on uh, Google. I Googled him. Um, and, that's, and, that's a good story in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. And, and what hole was he on? I, 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 I bet I, he three-putted and he's going, God damn, I don't I'm know, but I can, go sideways. I can noodle on that one because he was originally going to play um, uh, opposite Elizabeth Taylor in um, the big one that Richard Burton played, Cleopatra. Ooh. He was going to be the uh, Mark Antony in Cleopatra, and then he dropped out, and they got Richard Burton. He, he dropped out of life, or he like I that, that's, a, that's he after dro- the golf game? Or? No, I think I think it was before the golf game. Something else came up, and he, he had another show where he didn't want to do it, and um, uh, they got they got Richard Burton in there. They gave the kick and to he dick. ended up marrying Elizabeth Taylor. Well, there you go. So, so I think so there might have been some alcohol involved in that decision. I think there might have been alcohol involved in. <laughs> they did, uh, but anyway, Stephen Boyd is sort of head of this bunch of um, uh, scuba divers. They go down to this wreck, and and then all weird stuff happens. There's sharks. There's always sharks down there. So you know, okay, they, they sort that out. And then some bad guys come along and say, "There's a whole lot of coffins down there that you have to retrieve the coffins because they're um, got treasure in them or something." And then there's you know there's fighting on deck, and there's people falling overboard, and people cutting ear hoses. And so is there like some unspeakable evil in the coffins? No, oh. no- nothing in the end. It's, it's, it's just gold or treasure. <laughs> I, I was about to start crying. The, the, then when I get scared, I cry. But, but, but no, the but last scene they go back down again and they find the, the typical treasure chest. You know where you lift, lift the lid of the old pirate's treasure chest and it's all full of gold doubloons or whatever. Yeah, they are. And, yeah. and that's it. That's it. That's the end of it. It's just. Uh, Cheryl Ladd is in it. She, she was she was Cheryl something else. She hadn't married Alan Ladd's son oh, yet. Yeah. She was in it. So was she one of the um, Charlie's Angels? Yes, she was. Yes, she, she, and she's young. She's pre-Charlie's cool. Angel, running around in a bikini. And, and I remember Charlie's Stephen, Angels. Stephen Boyd and uh, Cheryl Ladd are probably the only you know, good points in the whole thing. Um, she did have a couple of good points. I remember that. <laughs> yes, she did. And she does in this uh, movie too. Back to too. the 70s. Yes. Yeah. So, 
It's, it's well a bit like Dick Emery, now, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, Benny Hill will play the theme. Anyone see my pussy? <laughs> we'll run around the studio with the Benny Hill song. <laughs> it's, it's sort of the movie where they, you could play the Benny Hill music in the background. <laughs> and it would work so much better. But but any, every time they jump, they spend a lot of it underwater just seeing people sort of fin along and fin around in uh, wrecks. And Stephen Boyd does all the narration as, you know, we dove in the water and all that. So we'll get a bit of Steve. You'll recognise his voice maybe. We'll get a bit of Stephen Boyd narration. We dove down to the shelf that bordered the drop-off. According to the chart, an abysmal 1,000 feet. Across the antler farm, we split and went in search of the crevice. At 90 feet, I made a mental note of a large phosphorescent sponge, our base mark. We swam under a branch of black coral, a sure indication that we were below 120 feet. It was too easy to drop down this face, and below 180 feet we ran the danger of suffering from nitrogen narcosis. So you've got all the... Yeah, I, I'm not sure what the evil in the deep is. Um, I, I, I think it's one of those movies they made it. It was wasn't going anywhere, so they, they renamed it or rebadged it Evil in the Deep and just stuck James L. Jones in there and really tried to pump it up and, and get some... And, and Stephen Boyd speaking very purposefully there. With, yeah, With, with bubbles in the background. I do recognise that voice from yeah, Ben-Hur yeah, and the, the chariot um, race. And like I said, he, did, he, did, he was sort of uh, big in the 60s, um, mm-hmm. as was surfing. Um, Bigger than Ben-Hur. Well, as big as. And uh, he actually got an um, Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in Ben-Hur, I think, for playing the bad guy. Mm, so, right, for yeah, those spikes. He, he was, he was a, an Oscar winner. Guys, yeah, I'm going to wrap this me. up. So Successful we can get, noodling. Well done. Yeah, well done. Thank yeah. you, Jeff. So thank you very much, Jeff Maynard. Thank you very much to Captain Winshift for explaining the difference between a yacht squadron and a yacht club to us. Um, and, of course, Perrin Cook from Monash University. I thank you from the depths of my so shallow heart, Dr Surf. <laughs> This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.